It's amazing how small children, especially, can watch the same TV programme or film over and over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how many times they've seen that particular episode of Thomas the Tank Engine, Tractor Ted, Sarah and Duck, or whatever it is, Paw Patrol with my lot, um, they can often sit quite happily and just watch it again. Now, it's quite hard to get out of a small child exactly why they do this. Maybe they just have a very short attention span and only pay attention to little bits at a time. And so every time they watch it, they get something new out of it. Or maybe they just simply like it. And they enjoy it, and having seen it five minutes ago doesn't really blunt that for them yet. For adults, though, familiar grounds can pose a problem. Even sometimes when we haven't seen something before... Um, If you can see the story beats play out in a way that's familiar, then you lose interest. It's why I uh, never really like James Bond films, because they all follow the same formula. Um, It's why I have to hold my tongue when I watch a period drama with my wife, (laughs) because I know that all the important plot points will happen in a ballroom scene. (laughs) Sometimes you 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 can't help it. You find your mind wandering because you've read it before, you've seen it before, you've heard it before. The feeding of the 5,000 is something that you will have heard before. It's one of the most famous miracles of Jesus, and for many people, they don't even need to step into a church to learn about it. I can remember the feeding of the 5,000 being one of those extracts of the life of Jesus that made it into my RS textbooks. That's what they called it at my school. It made an RE, or even RK in yours. Um, being an RS textbook, uh, the point of the whole thing was sharing. I'm just going to say now that's not the point of the whole thing at all. You'll find this story in all four Gospels. There are similarities, and there are different points that are picked up by the different authors as they draw different (coughs) lessons. So the first challenge as we um, walk through this familiar ground is to be aware of, but not account for the details that we can fill in from the other Gospels, and to look at the story as Mark presents it. Now, the Gospel of Mark is um, what a historian would call a Greco-Roman biography, which confusingly means it's only similar to a modern biography. Ancient authors didn't write in the same way that modern authors do. You'd expect, for example, the modern biography to talk about someone's childhood, probably progress through their early adulthood, um, and gradually go through their career, their life achievements in chronological order before concluding they're dead, their death. Yet, um, perhaps more like a very popular autobiography at the moment, uh, written by a member of our royal family, um, the Gospels do carry an agenda. They recount events to fit what the author is trying to communicate, not just to retell events for the sake of it. Now, I've not read that particular book, that popular autobiography, so I'm not going to tell you any more about that. <laughs> um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the 2004 historical epic Alexander. I might have the director's cut on DVD, and unlike the normal cut of the film, they start with the Battle of Galgamela, which is the great battle when Alexander the Great defeated the Persians. And it doesn't give you a chronological retelling of his life. Instead, it starts with the legendary image of this general who's just gone and conquered, and then it sort of makes him more human and ends with him as sort of a flawed man, failing really at the end. Now, 
Mark's Gospel um, doesn't tell us about Jesus as a child or how he was born. Rather, it zeroes in on certain events and retells them in a way that teaches us something about Jesus' character. And this is important because this story appears in the other three Gospels as well. And John, especially, goes on to place his emphasis very differently to Mark. I'll point out where these, these details are that aren't uh, in Mark's account and they're given elsewhere, but we're not going to dwell on those because we're trying to see and share what it is that Mark is drawing out from Jesus' character and showing to us. So in this account we have Jesus, of course, uh, the crowd and the disciples, and first we're going to turn to the crowd and look at them. Jesus' disciples have just been on, as Chris described it two weeks ago, a short-term mission trip around the towns of northern Galilee. We've also just last week gone through the account where Herod kills John the Baptist. When we covered this part in Luke with Life Groups, um, which we did not that long ago, I went and found a picture of the Sea of Galilee because I found it helpful to just get how small this part of the world is into our heads as we go through this. Um, yeah, it worked. <laughs> so the Sea of Galilee itself is perhaps at most 17 kilometres across, um, and Capernaum sits sort of on the northwest side. Um, yeah, it is on there, so don't know whether everyone can see it. Um, um, there's Tiberias further on the coast as well. That was quite a recent construction. Um, it was built by Herod, Herod Antipas, who Chris was telling us about last week. And he named it in honour of the new emperor, which is why it's called Tiberias. And it serves as his capital. It's easy to see how Herod heard of the things that Jesus was doing. Um, he was doing them in his neighbourhood, and it's all really tightly packed together. And Jesus' disciples had just been through all the surrounding area proclaiming the kingdom. Perhaps many of those who would end up um, in the 5,000 were following them back to see Jesus and hear from Jesus themselves. Certainly when Jesus and his disciples tried to leave by boat to a desolate place, people see them leaving and they follow them around the shore. Now again, this is not the Mediterranean, Jesus and his disciples can't throw up a sail and bomb down the coast and, you know, within a few hours be 50 miles away. The Sea of Galilee is small enough that especially those who are just slightly inland, it's quite hilly, um, would be able to see a boat out on the lake with no problem at all. Without the large winds that you would more commonly get on a more open body of water, they're probably going slow enough that the crowd would be able to keep up with them and follow them around. So the disciples come ashore and find a great crowd waiting for them. Mark tells us what Jesus did and what the crowd were like. Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We're not told a great deal about the crowd from Mark. After following Jesus around the lake, they cease to become active. What's important is how Jesus is treating them with compassion. Some of these people will have come a very long way to see Jesus. The 5,000 is 5,000 men, presumably not counting women or children with them. Some of them may have met his disciples. So they went out on through the uh, local villages and travelled back to the Sea of Galilee hoping to see Jesus. They're people who were earnestly seeking him for one reason or another, they certainly didn't give up when Jesus got into a boat and sailed away. And they're described as being without a shepherd. Now, a shepherd leads and protects his sheep. And this is why Jesus has compassion on them. 
In John 10 verse 11, Jesus will proclaim, I am the good shepherd. And here Jesus does just this. He takes the role of a shepherd, the one who would lead and protect his sheep. Now, being without a shepherd has significance in the Old Testament. And here Mark shows Jesus identifying this need of the people for a shepherd and then acting to fill that role. Let's read an extract from Ezekiel 34, a book written during the time Judah was taken into exile by the Babylonians. And this passage in particular, probably in response to the, the leaders of the people not being very good shepherds. This is, a, this, is a, this is the Lord speaking initially. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. God himself promised to be the people's shepherd. And here we see the Lord's compassion in how he shepherds, seeking the lost, bringing back the strayed, and also how he protects them and rules justly. Curiously, later on in the same passage, it goes on to say this in verses 23 and 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And here's another shepherd, David. Now, David belongs to a time long before Ezekiel. So here we have a, a role for the Davidic Messiah to play, that of a shepherd, the one shepherd over the people. But didn't God himself say mere verses before that he will be the people's shepherd? Now, having this Old Testament context in our minds, I'll revisit this in a second, <laughs> let's think about how Jesus took the role of shepherd in our passage. Mark doesn't record Jesus feeding the people right away. Nor does he record healings, which other Gospels do, or other wondrous works. Instead, Jesus teaches them. He began to teach them many things, and he was doing so for some time, because he didn't stop until it was growing late. So around the time of the evening meal, he's been teaching them until tea time. We can assume from Mark that Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom, because that's what Jesus has been doing in the chapters leading up to this. He probably called the people to turn away from their sins and start living for God, because he told his disciples to proclaim that people should repent when he sent them out, um, just a few verses ago. <coughs> of course, if you read the other Gospels, Luke will just tell you that he taught them about the kingdom, but Mark doesn't tell us that. What's important to Mark is that Jesus sees the crowd and has compassion on them, and that compassion takes the form of teaching. Jesus sees that the people are in need, and he does something about it. We know that he's calling people to the kingdom, that those people may inherit eternal life. That's the immediate need that Jesus seeks to fill. These people are lost. They don't have a shepherd. And he comes to lead them into eternity. This is the priority of Jesus. 
Those who earnestly seek Christ will find him. And what will they receive? Membership of the kingdom. Adoption as children of God. Becoming joint heirs with Christ. Not the promise of a full stomach or a big house or anything like that. Now, of course, Jesus does care about our material provision, and we'll see that elsewhere. But his priority is your salvation. It's a stark improvement from those currently trying to shepherd the people. Consider the Pharisees, with all their rules and extra things that they burdened the people with. Or the passage immediately before this one. Herod Antipas was a nasty piece of work. He willingly broke God's law, was more concerned for keeping faith before others than acting justly, and had John the Baptist killed for speaking the truth. In comparison, Jesus is clearly the good shepherd, the only one worthy of being so. I think we're welcome to draw that comparison. I think that's probably why Mark places these accounts next to each other. Jesus' teaching of the people could also be pointed to something else too. So we've read parts from Ezekiel just now. Jesus is going after the main problem. The sin that keeps us apart from God. He's calling the lost, the strayed, the weak into the kingdom to be their one shepherd, prince over them. Now, Jewish views on the nature of God and how many persons made up the Godhead are very interesting. It's something I can't get into here in detail, however, both because it would be a gigantic tangent um, and because it's something I want to learn more about myself. It would make a good topic for Sunday evening, however, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's description of the crowd as being without a shepherd and then showing Jesus shepherding the people it's quite possibly him making a subtle and very Jewish statement of Jesus' di- divine nature for both God and his Messiah are the shepherd Mark then is identifying Jesus as both it's quite a dramatic thing but teaching isn't such a dramatic thing The saving work of the Lord's Messiah doesn't come like an army sweeping all before it, but as a shepherd seeking out his lost sheep. The food that Jesus comes to feed the people with then is not physical. Rather, it's a spiritual food that will lead them to eternal life. It's in this that Jesus will fill the promised role of shepherd as the Messiah. His spiritual food, his heavenly food, will not be exhausted. It will not last only for a moment. And just as there is food in the baskets left over, as we'll read, so the teaching of Christ does not just end. The shepherdhood of Christ is established over his people, over his kingdom, permanently. He will feed them and be their shepherd. We're perhaps reminded of the story when the sick man was brought to Jesus and loaded through the roof. Jesus forgives his sins and afterwards heals him of his paralysis. And he does it in that order because his paralysis is not the real problem. And he's proving to the Pharisees and others in the room that he can forgive sins. Here, the miracle by which the story gets its name happens (coughs) after Jesus has taught the people. Jesus addresses their eternal need for spiritual food first before their earthly need for food. As it grows late, and they find themselves with nothing to eat. 
when God brought his people up out of Egypt and you know, he rescued them first and then fed them with manna from heaven second. And Jesus is following the same hierarchy. He has taught the people that some of them might be saved and then giving thanks for the five loaves and two fish, breaking the loaves, he has the food divided among the people and they are fed. Interestingly, Mark doesn't give us much detail. He doesn't even give us the reaction of the crowd. In fact, other than following Jesus around the lake, the crowd's purpose here seems to be just so Jesus can show compassion upon them. In John 6, you will find details of the crowd's reaction, but here Mark deems that's unimportant to his narrative. If you do read John 6, you might perhaps see why that detail is not included by Mark, if Mark is trying to show us how compassionate Jesus is. It would be uh, prudent now to talk about the other party in this account. So we've talked about the crowd, um, we've talked about Jesus, but how does Jesus deal with his disciples in this passage? <coughs> Our passage today begins with the disciples returning to Jesus, telling him what they've done and taught. Now coming to Jesus as they're doing him is a good thing to do. The disciples start out well. And you can tell it's a good thing because of how Jesus responds to it. Now just before I get to verse 31, there are two reasons given for Jesus heading out to a desolate place in the Gospels. The reason given in Matthew 14 verse 13 is the story of Herod killing John the Baptist. Possibly not a reaction to Jesus hearing that John the Baptist has been killed, because both Mark and Matthew describe people saying about Jesus that he's John the Baptist raised to life. So people generally knew John was dead at this point. Rather, it seems a reaction to Herod hearing about Jesus. Luke in chapter 9, verse 9, gives details supporting this. He says that Herod sought to see Jesus. And this is something that Jesus and the disciples would know. Because Luke records in chapter 8, verse 3, the wife of Herod's household manager is a follower of Jesus. They have an ear in Herod's court. So there's certainly an element that Mark isn't mentioning here. Jesus is withdrawing because it's not time to meet Herod yet. However, just as we can often go on a journey that has more than one purpose, Mark spells out a different purpose for the journey. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while, says Jesus. Now I've been told by people that understand these things more than I do, that the Greek is meant to be a compassionate response here. Jesus isn't just having passion compassion upon the crowd in this story. It opens with him having compassion upon the disciples. They're tired. They have been busy travelling and preaching the gospel, and it's busy where they are. Many are coming and going, and they have no leisure even to eat. Tired, hungry disciples. It looks like they need a rest, and they need a meal, and it seems that's what they're going to get. Withdrawing with Jesus to a desolate place to rest, to uh, the Savior, as Luke tells us, will remove Jesus from the territory of Herod Antipas and into that of his half-brother Philip. But it also removes his disciples from where they are and takes them somewhere where there aren't so many people where they might be able to rest and get a bite to eat. Mark tells us the reason for this journey is Jesus having compassion on his disciples. Jesus could have withdrawn across the Sea of Galilee over into Philip's territory and gone to one of the towns, 
This would have got him away from Herod Antipas. Going to a desolate place is not a requirement for getting away from Herod. There's a reminder here to all of us engaged in Christian ministry, isn't there? However we do it, um, that we need rest and we serve a God who's happy to prescribe it. Sometimes it's appropriate to withdraw to a, a desolate place where you can get some peace from others. It's also a reminder to look out for signs of exhaustion in others serving the <coughs> Of course, you might say. Doesn't a massive crowd follow them to the desolate place? It doesn't sound restful to me. Fair point. So what does Jesus do about this? Well, what happens when they come to the crowd? It's Jesus who has compassion upon them and teaches them. And does so till it starts to grow late. The disciples have just been out teaching people. Jesus hasn't required them to teach the people again. It may not be the ideal holiday, perhaps, but Jesus has managed to have compassion on the people while allowing his disciples, for the time being, not to be involved, giving them a chance to sit back, rest a bit. Perhaps now we're we're coming to the reason why we're not told the crowd's response to the feeding. Because when it comes to the feeding, in Mark, we have an exchange between Jesus and his disciples. It seems here as though Jesus is intent on informing them something of his identity, his character, as the feeding of the crowd has a particular purpose for the disciples. During the Exodus, the people come to Moses in the wilderness and grumble. There's no food. We'd be better off in Egypt. Now, they've got food in Egypt. You've brought us out here to kill us. What's going on? What's the plan? Though not quite in the same way, his disciples point to a similar problem. They've got plenty of grass, but unless you're a sheep, you're going to go hungry pretty quickly. They point this out to Jesus, and Jesus helpfully responds, you give them something to eat. What's Jesus getting at? He's brought them out here to get away from it all. All these people have come over to join them, and now he's told his disciples to feed them. The disciples don't get it yet. They point out how absurd it is that they could possibly feed them. Should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It was clearly going to take a bit longer for them to get the Exodus connection. Now John makes a big deal about this. He lays on this connection thick throughout and soon after uh, has Jesus teaching the people that he is the bread of life. Mark's more subtle. Mark seems to expect that his readers will have a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament to pick this up. Um, the main thrust doesn't require his readers you know, have a detailed knowledge of the Old Testament, which kind of makes sense because Mark is written to a more Gentile audience. In Exodus, there's an exchange between the people and God via Moses. Here, Jesus seems to be taking both the role of Moses interceding and the role of God feeding the people. How many loaves do you have? asks Jesus. The disciples go off to count to see how much food there really is. Maybe everyone has been super prepared and brought an enormous packed lunch with them, but they haven't. His disciples find five loaves and two fish. Prior to the feeding, Jesus gets the disciples to establish there isn't enough food to feed the people. 
though the disciples haven't seemed to grasp that Jesus wants them to turn to him to provide, it's like, come on guys, ask me, and they're not doing it. <laughs> um, they still do what Jesus asks them to do. They sit the people down in groups by hundreds, by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. There's an echo of two kings, 42 to 44. Um, when Elisha feeds a hundred men with twenty loaves, a man came from Baal Shalishar, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. But of course, the feeding of the 5,000 doesn't go quite that way. Not only is the miracle absolutely enormous in comparison to the feeding performed by Elisha, Jesus does not say to his disciples words to the effect of, sit the people down to eat, for thus says the Lord, and they will have food to eat and have some left. Jesus instructs the disciples. Jesus will give thanks for the food, and this is in the same way that we give thanks before we eat. Jesus is giving thanks for it as a meal. We're not told what he said. We're not told what God commands Rather, Jesus is acting as God would act. Just as God fed the people in the wilderness, just as Elisha states that it is God who will be doing the feeding when he feeds the 100, Jesus acts as though he is the source of the food. Mark here is, has Jesus dropping a not-so-subtle hint to his disciples of his divine identity. Not just that he's God, but that he's a compassionate God who wants to provide for his people and, of course, with the illusions, the Exodus account of God who is saving his people. Mark is, of course, retelling Peter's account. And Peter would certainly have had time to dwell on what all of this meant. In verse 45, Jesus will instruct his disciples to set out towards um, the Seder. Maybe before events overtook them, and I'll not get into that because that's that's not for today. <laughs> but before events overtook them, they may have discussed what all this meant. But without getting into that, we know that the penny hasn't quite dropped for them yet. Now Luke will cut to the chase with what Peter will say, and later in Mark we get to Peter's confession. And he asks them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. <coughs> we thought earlier about how small children can watch a particular TV programme or film over and over again. They have this intense persistency to keep going. And where we as adults sometimes find retreading familiar ground a bit difficult, we've seen how Jesus' compassion is persistent. Indeed, it carries on throughout our lives, persistently working on us, shepherding us, feeding us. Like a small child that wants to keep going, wanting one more episode, Jesus keeps persisting with us, 
A few quick points here to sum up, perhaps, how complete Jesus' compassion is. Jesus has compassion on those seeking him. We learn from this that Jesus has compassion on those who seek him, and we know that this this compassion centres on our relationship with God, not our material desires. That means his priorities may not align with ours. It means that things we might not see purpose in, that could be suffering or a misfortune, could in fact be used for good. Sometimes God does draw people in from desolate places. In this passage, when Jesus sees the people, he has compassion on them. They do not have to ask for his compassion. They do not have to bring some sort of sacrifice to him. Many of these people would have likely come on the back of the disciples' ministry. Maybe some of them were in the kingdom. Maybe some of them weren't. For many, it seems, the disciples' ministry brought them to seek Jesus. Ultimately, then, any success the disciples had wasn't really the disciples' success. It was Jesus. We pray for those who don't know Jesus, and we bring them along to services, or we talk to them, knowing that it is Jesus who will do the work, not us. Secondly, Jesus has compassion on those who have found him. Jesus' compassion doesn't cease when we're saved. The first to receive his compassion in this passage wasn't the crowd, it was his disciples. When they come back and report to Jesus, he responds tenderly. Come away by yourselves to a desolate place, rest a while. Now we should bring everything we can do to Jesus in prayer. The lyrics of the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, I think sums it up quite well. When it alludes to the peace we often forfeit and the pain we bear because we don't, you know, carry everything to God in prayer. (coughs) Jesus, in response to the disciples here, um, to take them somewhere where they can rest, the priority may be getting people into the kingdom, but Jesus hasn't forgotten that his disciples are human beings, and they get tired. Jesus' compassion extends beyond your salvation to your well-being. Take your needs to him and let him meet them. Now there's obviously a very to be careful with that. The disciples need rest, they're taken somewhere to rest, but they're not given their own villas on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. You know, with servants supply them with food. Jesus meets their needs, but he doesn't seek to involve them to with discomfort from them. We also get a hint of how Jesus' compassion will carry on through the life of a Christian. At this point, Jesus' disciples have not fully grasped who Jesus is. Jesus uses the occasion, the feeding of the 5,000, to teach his disciples who he is. Now, they fail to come to him when he alludes to him being the solution for the lack of food, but he doesn't reprimand them for that. Rather, Jesus carries on, forms the miracle. Now, his disciples do as Jesus asked without explanation. They sit the people down as Jesus told them to. They're trying to follow Jesus. It can be easy to think that maybe they're a bit slow, looking back, reading it now. But without the benefit of hindsight, I'm not convinced I would do much better. Does the description of a Christian who's trying but not quite meeting up to the mark ring true with anyone here? I suspect the answer is yes. Jesus 
doesn't wait for the disciples before he acts. His feeding of the people, like his teaching of the people, did not depend on the disciples trusting Jesus to do either of those things. Yet he uses the occasion to teach them. It was one in a series of hints that Jesus drops that eventually the disciples understand. Jesus allows his disciples to grow in their understanding of him. He doesn't expect the finished article straight away. Likewise, we will all encounter things that we don't understand about God's word or what he's doing in our lives. One day we might look back in hindsight on our own lives and think we were a bit slow back then. Jesus isn't going to leave you where you are when you first enter the kingdom. He will lead you along to learn more about him, grow to have a deeper love for him, to be more like him even. For the disciples, this is a fairly dramatic bump along the road of sanctification. The same road all of us who are Christians here today, travelling, and will be travelling until glory. So the compassion of Jesus sends out messengers to call people to him, just as the disciples have been sent out. It responds to those who seek him to bring them into the kingdom. And once in the kingdom, Jesus, in his compassion, is their growing Christians, patiently drawing them closer, teaching them more. In verse 43, we see they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. It was common amongst the Jews at that time to carry these very large baskets to carry goods. And the Greek seems to make it more likely that they're not saying there was enough to fill 12 baskets, but that they had 12 baskets and they filled them. The disciples may have had those baskets in the boat and brought them along. And it's enough leftovers for them each to have one gigantic market basket full of food. The feeding of the 5,000 doesn't just end. There's abundant leftovers. The disciples who had no leisure even to eat will have plenty for a few days. Likewise, Jesus' teachings. His provision, his compassion, doesn't end the moment of conversion or after a particularly poignant moment of sanctification. It carries on. It's abundant, persistent and overflowing. Even when we think the work's done, there's leftovers. It's not exhausted. Let us pray. I thank you, Lord, that you came as the great shepherd. Our one shepherd that we, uh, that we need over us to follow. And also that we know that you will provide for us. You will lead us to green pastures. You will give us rest. And Lord, you will give us eternal life. Lord, I pray that you'd help uh, each of us here to follow you, to recognise uh, you as our shepherd, and to seek compassion from you, Lord. Uh, whether we know you or not, that we know that we come to you, and you will give compassion to us wherever we wherever we are, how we need it, Lord. Amen. Amen. Amen.